Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, historian Timothy Snyder on the Holocaust as history and warning in his book Black Earth. Timothy Snyder is the Hausam Professor of History at Yale University. He's the author of Bloodlands, which received the Hannah Arendt Prize, the Leipzig Book Prize for European Understanding, and the Literature Award of the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He's a frequent contributor to the New York Review of Books and the Times Literary Supplement, and a former contributing editor at the New Republic. He's also a member of the Committee on Conscious of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, a permanent fellow of the Institute for Human Sciences, and sits on the advisory council of the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research. And Timothy's latest book is Black Earth, The Holocaust as History and Warning, which we're going to be talking about today. So, Tim, welcome to Little Atoms, first of all. Glad to be here. There's a lot of books been written about the Holocaust, so let's talk, first of all, briefly about what this one is about. So it's absolutely true that there are countless books on the Holocaust. And if we hadn't gotten as far as we've gotten in understanding it, I wouldn't have written this book. But there there are two things which, in my argument, are perhaps a little bit different. We've gotten accustomed to think about the Holocaust as a matter of Germany and as a matter of German Jews, which is largely an artifact of the Cold War and the files and the people to which we had access during those 45 years or so. In fact, German Jews are a very small percentage of the victims of the Holocaust, and interestingly, most of them survived. The bulk of people who were killed in the Holocaust came from Eastern Europe, and a very large percentage of the perpetrators were East Europeans as well. So the first thing that I've tried to do is make the book European, to bring in all the sources and all the knowledge that we now have. The second thing, which is a little bit different, is that this is an argumentative book. It's an interpretive book. The The study of the Holocaust has tilted in the direction of memory, of images, of stories, of recollections. And what I'm a little concerned about is that as we've done this, we've lost track a little bit or perhaps never even quite fully learned exactly the thing that we are remembering. I'm concerned a bit that the Holocaust is fragmenting off into a lot of individual subjective images before, in fact, we understand what it's all about. So in this book, I make an argument about what caused it, and then I tried to draw conclusions about what that would mean for the present and the future. I want to start off looking at Hitler, and Hitler has a worldview that's central to why the Second World War happens, why the Holocaust happens, and you know everybody will be familiar with the idea that anti-Semitism is obviously central to Hitler's worldview, but it was also central to you know a lot of Europe in the East, in the Soviet Union. But let's talk about what was 
unique about Hitler's worldview, I guess? That's, that's a really well-put question because it's not, it's not a matter of taking anti-Semitism and just saying Hitler was more anti-Semitic than other people. What was dangerous is that his anti-Semitism had a kind of coherence. It was a kind of coherent response to everyday anxieties about globalization, which are actually not so foreign from our own experience. Mm-hmm. What Hitler did was he took everyone's concerns about globalization, anxieties about the environment, about prosperity, about security, and he transferred them onto a single group of people. And the way he did it was this. He said, there is a state of nature. There's a way things ought to be. And the way things ought to be is this. The world has so many resources. Those resources are limited. There's only a definite amount. The earth is only so big. And what should really be happening is a natural struggle for those resources among races. And you Germans should be prosperous. You should be more prosperous than you are. You should not only survive, you should be prospering, you should be comfortable, you should be secure. And the reason that you're not, the reason you don't feel this way, is you don't have enough land. And the thing which is stopping you, and this is where it gets interesting, the thing which is stopping you is no real pressure. It's no real force in the world. The thing which is stopping you, says Hitler, are Jewish ideas. Now, for Hitler, the category of Jewish ideas is a huge one because it embraces literally everything which allows human beings to see other human beings as such. So what we should be doing, Hitler thinks, is recognize members of our own race and be insolidated with them and conquer and starve and kill everyone else and take their land. But all of these ideas, whether it's Christianity or whether it's communism, whether it's ethics, whether it's the state, all of these ideas, says Hitler, are Jewish. Even the promise of science, uh, that science might make the world a gentler place, that too, says Hitler, is Jewish. So what's formidable about Hitler's worldview is this notion that everything which is stopping us from being who we should be comes from the Jews. And also, at this point in history, what Germany don't have that the other major world powers still have is, is an empire or, or even really the prospect of one. That's right. Hitler's views are extreme, but they can be compared to, and indeed Hitler himself compares his own views to other kinds of imperialism. So he looks around the world and he says, well, the British Empire became what it is because of uh, its, its, its maritime power. And he he looks at the United States and says, well, the United States is essentially a Germanic nation. It shows what Germanic peoples can do. It used slave labor and it wiped out native peoples. It's built this powerful country, which basically is going to dominate the future. He has a very high view of the United States, actually, until the U.S. declares war in 1941. Then, of course, things have to change. So what Hitler believes is that the superior races have to conquer territory. It's natural they conquer territory, that the whole history of the world shows that they do conquer territory. And all that's left for him is to choose where the plausible empire for Germans would be. And that plausible empire for him is Eastern Europe. That's the last bit of territory which is really imaginable. And for Hitler, it's in a way, it's a stroke of good fortune that Eastern Europe is dominated by the Soviet Union. Because as Hitler sees matters. Again, communism is one of these Jewish ideas. So he claims that Jews are communists and communists are Jews. So the moment he strikes the Soviet Union, it's going to collapse. Its non-Jewish subjects are going to rebel against their supposed Jewish overlords. And then the wealth of its territory will belong to the Germans. In particular, he's concerned about Ukraine. Ukraine is the place where Germans are going to conquer and Germans are going to prosper. What is it about Ukraine particularly then that's attractive? It's black earth. It's fertile soil. Um, I mean, if you even if you look at the if you look at agricultural publications now, it's interesting to see that Ukraine is the third or fourth biggest exporter of foodstuffs in the world. The country is a mess in many ways, but this is one thing they do extremely well. And back in the 1930s, when people were much more concerned with food than they are today, 
This was extraordinarily appealing. Even Stalin, when Stalin built the Soviet Union, he he counted on Ukraine as the source of food for everyone else. And for that reason, Ukraine was subject to particular repression under Stalinism in the 1930s. Hitler also looked at Ukraine and said, this is the place where we can build our empire. This is the territory which will allow us to get the food we need and indeed to break out of Europe, to become a world power, to not only be secure, but to know for the next generations that we're going to have what we need. Hitler had put about this idea that a lot of the ideas that were current in the world at the time were were Jewish ideas, and obviously he's facing the Soviet Union. So there's this idea, I want to just expand on the idea of Judeo-Bolshevism, which mm-hmm. is his big idea. Yeah, so the Soviet Union is the place where Hitler's planetary view, his view that everything on the planet that hinders natural competition, that hinders natural struggle is Jewish, where his planetary view meets a territory. Because the way he presents the Soviet Union is that this is the instantiation of Jewish power. This is an example how, of how Jews do what they do. They have these various ideas, one of them is Bolshevism, which they use to trap less intelligent people. These are basically political traps for non-Jews. All Jews care about things Hitler is, is controlling the entire world, but they have these various ideas, and Bolshevism is one of them, by which they control particular parts of the world. So the Judeo-Bolshevik idea is the idea that Bolsheviks are Jews and and Jews are Bolsheviks. This means that for Hitler, when he attacks the Soviet Union, two things are going to happen. It should just collapse if he kills Jews, since it's a Jewish state, and he believes that if he can make it collapse, he'll be striking a first blow against the Jewish world order as such. Another large argument of this book is the idea that you know Hitler was I mean he didn't believe in the idea of the nation state for a start and and one of the ways that he went about achieving what he did was the destruction of various nation states and and later on in the interview we'll, we'll look at some of those in more detail but I want to look first of all at what he did to Germany you'd sort of term it as he turns it into like a, into a racial state so let, let's talk about what that means yeah this is another point I'm trying to make very very strongly that just like it's not enough to say that Hitler is an, is an anti-Semite and very much an anti-Semite. It's also not enough, and it's probably just wrong, to say that Hitler was a nationalist, just very much of a nationalist. I don't think Hitler was actually concerned with the German nation as such at all. From his point of view, the German race was probably superior to others, but this was all a matter to be tested out in practice. And you had to remove all of the restraints in the world in order to test this out. If the Germans won, terrific. And if they didn't, then that was fine too. And what this means is that he wasn't concerned to build a state for the Germans. On the contrary, he says explicitly in Mein Kampf that we can't be deterred by existing state borders. In language which people tend to ignore, he talks about how political borders have to give way to the natural right of races to struggle for what they need. And I think this is really telling. Because once he does take power in Germany, what he is mainly concerned to do, I think, is to build up the potential, what he sees as the racial potential, to make the revolution abroad, to start a war which is going to destroy other people's countries and to take what they have. And what this means is that inside Germany, the way to see developments is not as the consolidation of some kind of authoritarian state, but rather as the creation of this racial potential, in particular by way of of the SS. It's important that we understand that the SS is not just one more conventional paramilitary. It's not a second army. It's actually a racial organization which is not subordinated to the state. And its first task is going to be to destroy other states. Likewise, concentration camps. Concentration camps are not just a special zone for the punishment of German citizens. They're a zone of no law. They're a zone where the state doesn't exist. They're a zone which is controlled by the SS. And they become, in effect, a kind of model for what life is going to be like when states are destroyed beyond Germany. And this also has the benefit of meaning that anybody that, that is against him, and I'm talking about, you know, in the early days, the you know, Weimar politicians or whatever, anybody that's ostensibly against Hitler is not against the German state, they're against the German race. 
the worst crime of the people that oppose Hitler to be against the German race than it is to just be against the German state. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, the way that Hitler and the Nazis present politics, normal political opposition is not possible because Hitler embodies the good of the race and the state and its laws are only significant insofar as they are instruments for the good of the race. And so you can't make an argument that, well, according to the law, you should do this or it would be good for the state if you did that, which is the normal way that we might mm-hmm. argue things in politics. So, yeah, you're right. So this reimagining of the German state into a, you know, the party and, and the racial state is the first of a series of, of what you describe as Hitler's innovations. And these are innovations to something that else that, that influenced him, which is the Balkan model of war, I guess. So let's first of all talk about what that Balkan model was, and then we'll go on and talk about how he, how he rejigged it. Right. One of the things that I'm really concerned to do in this book is to make sure that we see Hitler and the Nazis and Germany in a global context. And one of the things that means is, is to make sure that we see the lessons that they drew from world history as they experienced it at the time. This doesn't mean that those lessons were right or that we have to agree with them, but that we have to remember that they were living too in a period of globalization. The examples they drew, the lessons that they drew, the things they thought were possible all had to do with what they had seen in recent global history. So in the Balkans, what do we have? In the Balkans over the course of the 19th century, we have an example of the consolidation of nation states from an empire, the consolidation of Greece, Serbia, then later on Romania, Bulgaria, from the Ottoman Empire by way of a certain kind of politics, a politics that privileges conquest over domestic development, a politics which throws a huge amount of resources at the army in order to be able to conquer territory, a politics which always insists that the national destiny is over the next ridge, over the next valley, over the horizon somewhere. What Hitler learns from the Balkans, and this is very interesting because he acknowledges this debt. You don't really imagine that Germans, let alone Nazis, are going to acknowledge their debt to South Slavs. But Hitler acknowledges that he has learned from this model, that all policy, in effect, is foreign policy. And the whole purpose of domestic policy is to rally the money and the energy to get your people abroad and fighting a war. That's where he begins. I'm Ian Sinclair. You're listening to Resonance FM. And this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's go through some of these innovations then. So you talk about the entrepreneurship of violence. What do you mean by that? So the entrepreneurship of violence is a key concept, which I use to try to explain how it is that you deal with racial ideas inside your own state. Hitler comes to power by challenging what Max Weber, the German sociologist, called the monopoly of violence. Weber says, and we all more or less accepted this idea, that the state is the entity that tries to monopolize legitimate violence. Hitler comes to power by challenging that. He has, he has groups called the SS and the SA who are meant, who are, at the beginning are street fighters. They're brawlers. They're provocateurs. They're meant to show that the state is weak. So where there's a monopoly of violence, these entrepreneurs come in and they try to break up the monopoly of violence. That's what they do. They find clever ways to do that. That's why I call them entrepreneurs. They spread violence in new ways where it didn't exist before. But what's interesting about that position is that let's say it's 1933 and you do come to power. What do you then do with these entrepreneurs of violence? What do you do with these brawlers, with these street fighters? And because you can't continue to contest the the state monopoly on on violence because you are now the state. So what you do then is you turn them, and the SS in particular, you turn them towards the project of creating the potential to export violence. And then when the SS gets abroad, and this is what's crucial, when the SS gets beyond Germany and doesn't face restraints, then they show the immense potential they have to create new kinds of violence. But also what you do is you turn on them as well. And, and the, you know, the SA, which were the, you know, the original 
street thugs were dispatched. Yeah, this is this is for me the meaning of of the Night of the Long Knives in 1934, when the SS in effect is turned against the SA. The SA followed the kind of original naive literal understanding of Hitler's writings and thought racial conflict just goes on and on and on. The revolution goes on and on and on. I mean, they were like sort of like the Trotskyites of you know of Nazism. There's a permanent revolution, and whereas the SS understood that once Hitler came to power, things in practice had changed. And one had to take time to transform the, the, the German state. One had to take time to transmogrify it, to make it Nazi. And one had to take time to prepare for the real assault abroad. And to do that, for example, one had to make deals with the army. The SS understood these things. They understood the need for delay. And so the SS um, embodies a second, as it were, more mature and developed form of Hitler's thought. And so it's no surprise that the SS is what's used to crush the SA. And so the SS then, as you just described, begin to basically export this out into other states. You describe this as the export of anarchy. So in, in general terms, how do they go about doing that? Right. So, yeah, that's anarchy. So what the, if, if you really believe in race, and it's important, I mean, for the whole argument, it's important to take Hitler's ideas seriously. If you really believe that the racial order is the real order and the political order that's before one's eyes is false, inherently flawed, corrupt, superficial, fragile, doomed to be destroyed, if what you really believe is true is race, then you are a kind of anarchist because what you think is going to happen is that races are going to struggle against races indefinitely once you clear all those structures away. But you can't do that inside Germany. Germany has to be kind of incubator that's preparing the potential for this for this racial revolution. So the export of anarchy is precisely taking the agents of zoological anarchy, of biological anarchy, of, of racial struggle, and sending them abroad, allowing them to take part in the destruction of Austria and Czechoslovakia. And then particular in 1939, using the SS not only to destroy the institutions of the Polish state, but actually to physically to eliminate, to mass murder the people who were in charge of the Polish state or, or could be thought of capable of building up something like a Polish state. That's the export of anarchy. You, you cultivate this immense potential to destroy other states. And then you, after 1939 especially, you send that potential abroad. You talk about the hybridization of institutions then. So presumably we're talking about Germany here because a key element of the uh, the production of statelessness is is the destruction of those institutions elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. So we've been talking about the, the SS and the SA so far, which are not state institutions. These are racial institutions. But once once Hitler is in power, once the Nazis are in power, they work very much to make sure that the institutions that they inherit are racialized, which is what I mean by hybrid. So Germany has police forces. It has national police forces, it has local police forces. And by hybridization, I mean moving members of the SS into the police force, recruiting policemen into the SS, mixing around the traditional duties of the police, which of course have to do with preserving order with the new idea which is actually in a way the opposite of destroying existing order, turning policemen into, in Himmler's words, racial warriors. And this works. I mean, in effect, German policemen continue to behave as policemen inside Germany. But when they are sent abroad, partly because of how they're trained, but I think also partly because of the, the anarchic conditions they find and create, they take part in mass murder. In fact, German policemen kill more Jews than the SS Einsatzgruppen do. So let's move on to look at the, the idea of statelessness then. And I want to look at a couple of examples, first of all, that in the, in the second part of the show, I want to look at Poland more closely. But let's begin with with Austria. So people will be familiar with the idea of the Anschluss. Austria was overnight taken into Germany. But one of the interesting things that happened there, which I'd like to talk about first of all, is how, well, the position of Jews in Austria before the Anschluss and then that, how that changed overnight. 
This is, it's a really important contrast. It's crucial for the argument that I want to make that in Austria, there was not this progressive discrimination of Jews as there was in Germany. The way the history of the Holocaust is normally told is that we get a lot of attention to Germany between 1933 to 1938, 19, or 1939, and then all of a sudden the rest of Europe comes into the picture. But what I'm trying to make sure we, we were able to do is see other European countries at the same time. And that allows for a kind of comparison, which I think helps us make arguments. So what we see with Austria is that it's not actually necessary to have progressive discrimination of Jews. It wasn't actually necessary to have Nuremberg laws. Austria didn't have any Nuremberg laws. The thing which was necessary was for Germans to come and destroy the Austrian state because that created this interval in which everything was possible. That anarchic moment, that surprising, that astonishing moment in March of 1938 when Jews were suddenly no longer citizens and could be forced to humiliate themselves by, by, by cleaning the streets of Austria. And Crucially, if you've seen the pictures, it's not just that they're scrubbing the streets. That's not what they're doing. They're scrubbing off the word Austria, which had been the electoral propaganda for a referendum which was going to take place on Austrian independence. They're being associated with the Austrian state. As the Austrian state goes away, symbolically, they're going away as well. And many of them do, which is the point. In the six weeks after Austria is merged with Germany, more Jews flee Austria than had fled Germany in the previous five years. And that's, I think that's an extraordinary statistic. In effect, Jews, are, Jews suffer about as much in Austria in just a very, very short period of time than they had in the previous years in Germany. And that should make us pause because we're used to the story of gradualism. And what I'm trying to show is that the, the gradualist story actually had limits. The Germans had basically reached a limit of what they could do with Jews inside Germany in 1938. It's when they go abroad and start destroying states that those limits begin to fall away. And what's even more surprising about that, the the, uh, the swiftness of, of the change in sort of the Jewish status is the Austrians didn't want the annexation. I mean, how did let's talk about how Hitler went about it. It wasn't a thing that, you know, everybody was in agreement with. That's very interesting. I mean, the, the Nazis were the third party in Austria, as far as we can tell, um, the third major political formation. They had a lot of support, but by, by no means a majority and probably, you know, probably less than in Germany itself. But the crucial moment is the moment when the Austrian chancellor, the prime minister, gives up and gives a radio address in which he says, we're not going to actually support Austria. And literally within minutes of that, Within hours of that, Austrian citizens have understood what's coming next. They know who's going to win. They know that German forces are coming. And astonishingly, people from other political formations very, very quickly go to the Nazi side. I mean, in the symbolic sense of wearing Nazi insignia, in the practical sense of oppressing Jews on the street the very, the very next morning. So the collapse of state authority then makes everyone want to be on the Nazi side, which helps to explain why the crowds greeting Hitler were so huge. It's not that everybody in Austria wanted National Socialism. It's that when there was no other alternative, I mean, it's partly, a lot of people did. I don't want to be misunderstood. A lot of people did. But when there was no other alternative, people wanted to make sure they were seen to be on the correct side. And therefore, whereas in Germany, people were actually a bit hesitant in general about public pogroms. In Austria, I think precisely for this reason, many people joined into them because they wanted to make sure that the, that the Nazi as they arrived, understood that they were on, as it were, the right side. I want to look at a, another example of an existing state that Hitler invaded, absorbed, took over and destroyed, which is Czechoslovakia. So, first of all, there's this, there's, and it's not even, you know, it's, it's, it's a fantasy, it's an idea, this idea of the Sudetenland, this place where there are a lot of German-speaking people living there, but it's not really a, a, a thing, is it? So, the, the Sudetenland is kind of a double illusion. The first illusion was for the German people. Hitler comes to power on a much more conventional program than his program in Mein Kampf, 
which is it's so interesting because it's like there's a dream world in Mein Kampf, and in some in some way the Germans must have known they were going to get that dream world as well because it was published, it was bought, it was presumably read. But then there's also the public world where Hitler runs on much more conventional ideas. He plays down the anti-Semitism, he plays down the desire for global racial conflict, and instead focuses on much more pragmatic things like gathering the Germans from abroad. He presents himself as a as a conventional nationalist who just wants to gather in Germans, which is simply not true. That wasn't his idea at all, but it was a way of gather of getting German domestic support, and it was also a way of putting pressure on the European system, which of course he wanted to make collapse. So the Sudetenland was not a historical entity; it was turned into a historical entity by the fact that Hitler talked about it and then annexed it. And so, therefore, we can't help but talk about the Sudetenland because it was annexed by Germany. But that's how it came into existence: is annexation by Germany. What Hitler was trying to do was gain German support to do something that was easy and to make actually to make the European system break down. He actually thought in 1938 he was going to be able to provoke the Western allies into a war, and he was disappointed that he failed to do so. And Czechoslovakia, I mean, it's, it's a relatively new state, like a lot of the other states that Hitler initially invades or takes over. But it's a, you know, it's a functioning democracy. How does he go about the destruction of that state? Yeah, it's it's so interesting how much he was able to do with words. Um, much more, I think, than he himself expected. He was surprised at how easy both Austria and Czechoslovakia were. He was surprised the Austrians gave in so easily. When he marched into Austria, he was surprised at the popularity he found, which was a result of the surrender, I think, in large measure. And then he was surprised by how easily the French and the British gave in over Czechoslovakia. He made the claim that all he wanted to do was bring in the Germans. He made the argument that this was consistent with the idea of national self-determination. And the British and the French, who felt somewhat guilty, especially the British, about the idea of national self-determination, went along with this. I think the British with conviction, the French out of cynicism, but they went along with this. Crucially, at the discussions in Munich, Czechoslovakia was not actually present. So the, the agreement to divide up Czechoslovak territory was made without Czechoslovak consent. But also, crucially, the Czechoslovaks chose not to fight. The Czechoslovaks had the best arms industry in Europe at the time. I mean, not only, as you say, were they a prosperous country, probably richer than France per capita, they had the best arms industry and they had fortifications which were laid out all through the, actually precisely through what we now call the Sudetenland. So when they gave it, when they chose not to fight and gave up that territory, um, not only were they giving up themselves, but they were changing the character of the future war. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Timothy Snyder. We're talking about his book, Black Earth, The Holocaust as History and Warning. And Tim, in this second part, I want to start us off looking at another state, possibly the the most significant one that, that Hitler made, destroyed the state, made stateless. And this is Poland. And one of the things I learned from this book that I, was, I, I wasn't already aware of was 
how early on Poland always figured in his plans, but completely in a different way to what eventually ended up happening. Hitler, in a way, is fortunate that the pre-war years supply him with experience in state destruction. He didn't take the state seriously. He knew that states had to be destroyed. But in a way which was fortunate for him but horrible for everyone else, the lead-up to his main war, his war against the Soviet Union, gave him, gave the Nazis experience in state destruction. So we talked about Austria and Czechoslovakia. Poland is the key example of this. Hitler didn't think he was going to be destroying the Polish state. What he thought was that Poland was going to join Germany either as a military ally or at least as a benign neutral in the great Nazi crusade against the Soviet Union, which, of course, was always at the center of Hitler's attention. And between 1934 and as late as January 1939, the Nazis were trying to recruit Poland for this mission. They were surprised when this did not work. When it did not work, then very quickly, Hitler turns on his heel, he changes his strategy completely, and decides that instead of attacking the Soviet Union with Polish help, he's going to attack Poland with Soviet help. And he arranges an alliance with the Soviet Union in August 1939, and both the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany invade Poland in, in September 1939. That None of that had been planned in advance. The opposite had been planned. But the invasion of Poland was consistent with the general idea that states should be destroyed. And because now a war was being made, Germany could destroy Polish state institutions much more thoroughly than it could Austrian or Czechoslovak ones. And in particular, under cover of war, for the first time, these special units led by the SS called Einsatzgruppen were sent behind German soldiers with a specific task of state destruction. In particular, they were to physically liquidate, to murder everyone who could be associated with the idea of a Polish state. I want to talk about why... Hitler's plan for Poland didn't work. Why are the Poles consistently? And they were, as you said. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. 
they were asked over and over and over again, right up until the until they were invaded, and they never went along with it. Now, Poland's it's not a it's not a Czechoslovakian style democracy. It also happens to be the place where the vast majority of European Jews live, and a place where anti-Semitism is pretty rife. So, what was different about Poland to Hitler's vision? Thanks. I mean, this is this is another place where I pause and I pay a lot of attention because it's important if we want to see how the Holocaust came about, and it's partly about states and how they collide and collapse. Then we have to know what the other states were and what their populations were and what their policies were. And Poland is interesting because, as you say, it's there are more than ten times as many Jews in Poland as there are in Germany. Uh, well over 3 million. Poland is going to be the heart of the Holocaust. The, the majority of Jews who die are going to be pre-war citizens of Poland. So its fate, one way or the other, is obviously crucial for, for the Holocaust. And interestingly, as you say, Polish authorities do pursue what are clearly anti-Semitic politics, what I call official anti-Semitism in the book. What they're trying to do is divert popular anti-Semitism, which is probably more widespread in Poland than it is in Germany, to divert popular anti-Semitism by promising the Polish people that Jews are going to go somewhere else. And so Poland in the late 1930s is seeking some imperial ally, the British above all, who will help them get the idea is to get 90% of the 3 million or so Polish Jews somewhere else to some imperial possession. Any imperial possession would do. But you know the main ideas are Madagascar, which is, of course, French, and Palestine, which is, of course, a British mandate at the time. And they take this policy so far as to actually materially and militarily support right-wing Jewish rebels who later are going to work against the British in Palestine. So this is their policy. Their policy is we want the Jews out, and the way we're going to do it is cooperate with the British, or if we can't cooperate with them, we're going to undermine them. We're going to force their hand. We're going to help create a Jewish state in Palestine. So where the Germans and the Poles collide in late 1938 is not over Danzig. That's the story that we're told over and over again, and I, I think it's 100% wrong. It doesn't have to do with German claims on Polish territory. It has to do with a difference opinion about how the world, how Europe should rid itself of Jews. The Poles think this should be done by sending them somewhere else abroad, with help in building a state. The Nazis, on the other hand, think it should be done by destroying the Soviet Union. Now, what the Poles can't understand, and this is where their understanding is much closer to the ground than the Germans, they don't understand how attacking the Soviet Union is going to get rid of Jews. They don't understand that the attack on the Soviet Union is going to lead to mass murder, that it's going to lead to the possibility of something totally new in history. What they think is, if we attack the Soviet Union, the British and the French are going to be against us, and then how are we going to get rid of our Jews? That's one of the reasons, not the only one, but that's one of the reasons why the Poles refuse to go along with this crusade against the Soviet Union. The other is that for the entire time, over the course of the 1930s, the Poles are pursuing a basic policy of trying to balance between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, which is totally logical given their geographic position. They're, even though they're friendly with the Nazis and they talk to them a lot about various subjects, their basic idea is we will never ally with one side against the other. Of course, where that leads in the end, and I'm afraid logically, is to a Soviet-Nazi alliance against Poland. Now, there was already a, obviously, a, there were already Jews living in Palestine and there was a you know a huge move, the Zionism movement from the late 19th century wanted a Jewish state in Palestine, in the, the, the British mandate as it was then. But this idea of Madagascar, I've heard it before and always thought it was like a, one of these crazy Nazi ideas. It seems so random. But it was also, it was you know, the, the Poles were also talking about it. So where does the idea of Madagascar as a place that was likely to take a, a, a millions of Jews come from? You're right. It's not, it's not very close to reality. But it was, it was something which was talked about in France. I mean, in, in French anti-Semites would say, Madagascar les Juifs, 
send them to Madagascar, which is a phrase which sounds even more horrible now than, than it did at the time. One of the advocates of it was actually a German anti-Semite uh, who functioned who functioned in, in French politics. But it was taken up by all kinds of people. You have to remember, this, this is a time when the globe was the last centimeters of the globe, which hadn't been conquered or controlled by imperial powers, were being controlled. And so people who were anti-Semites who were looking for a way, or Zionists for that matter, either way, from either angle, who were looking for a way to get Jews somewhere else besides Europe, they're looking for underpopulated imperial possessions. And Madagascar's figured in people's imagination as one of those. And if you were an anti-Semite, it was an island. So you could imagine they were separated from everyone else. And if you were an extreme anti-Semite, you can, as Hitler was, you can imagine that they would go there and die, which was, which was Hitler's idea. But you're right. It was brought up by all kinds of people. Look, the Poles were at first thinking in the 1920s, they would settle Poles in Madagascar. And then because you have to remember in general, this was a time of rural op- over, overpopulation and where it's not just that the British wouldn't let the Jews settle in Palestine. It's that in general, you couldn't go to North America anymore. Up until the 1920s, North America had been this big safety valve for Slavs, for East Europeans, for Jews, for everybody. But with new immigration law in the United States, this was no longer true. So for whatever reason you were trying to move people, and no matter what people you were trying to move, it looked like there was less and less of the world available to you. So anyway, the Poles tried Madagascar in the 1920s for themselves, and then in the 1930s they thought about it as a place to send Jews. But the difference between them and the Nazis was the Poles were always really thinking of sending real Jews to a real island. For the Nazis, Madagascar, I think, was much more of an abstraction, just some idea of wilderness. And if that didn't work out, then some other idea of wilderness could be found or even something more awful. So you mentioned that the Nazis, one of the ways in which they were going to make Poland stateless was to destroy all of the people that had anything to do with the state, so the intelligentsia. And of course, that would also have the, the happy coincidence with the Nazis that a lot of those Polish intellectuals would have been Jewish. The Russians also did this as well. Stalin also took part in this destruction of the of the Polish intelligentsia and the officer class, you know, the Katyn massacre and whatever. So what? why did they take part in it? Well, the, the, the Nazis and the Soviets have different theories of politics, but they led in practice to the same consequence. The Nazi idea is that Poles are Slavs and therefore an inferior people and therefore they shouldn't have an intelligentsia, so wipe them out. The Soviet idea was in a way what's more respectful, that the world is divided into classes. There's a, there's a Polish leading class. That Polish leading class is called the intelligentsia. They are our natural enemies. Therefore, we should destroy them. So you start from different premises, but you end up targeting the same people. And to such an extent that it's a kind of commonplace in, in Poland today to know people of whom one grandparent was killed by the Germans and another was killed by the Soviets. So this is, I mean, it's the beginning of the period of time in this area of land that in the, you, know, you describe as the bloodlands in your previous book. And um, this huge swathe of lawless Eastern Europe. I guess I want to get us to to how that gets to what we now think of as the Holocaust as a bureaucratic mechanized thing. If indeed that, if indeed there's such an obvious distinction, one of the key things obviously is that now, you know Hitler now betrays Stalin and and Barbarossa happens. Yeah. So the, the mechanized bureaucratic Holocaust, I think, is basically an illusion. I don't think that that's it. Got more organized. It got better administered. But it started off because of the possibilities. Of that were offered by anarchy, or by, if you like, by double state destruction. Up until 1941, Germans had repressed Jews, they had humiliated Jews, they'd stolen from Jews, um, they'd forced Jews to emigrate, they put Jews in Poland in ghettos where they died of hunger and disease in, in large numbers, in tens of thousands. But they hadn't carried out the mass murder of Jews, the deliberate mass murder of Jews. That starts in 1941 when Germany invades the Soviet Union. And it, it starts then for two reasons. The first is that this idea of state destruction 
which is a constant, is now turned directly against the Jews because there's, there's this idea that the Jews are the political class of the Soviet Union. So for the first time, it's not the first time the Einsatzgruppen kill people in large numbers, but it's the first time they kill Jews in large numbers, 1941, when they invade the Soviet Union. The second reason is that the Einsatzgruppen, when they, when they enter the Soviet Union, they find that there are a very large number of locals who are willing to go along. And this has to do with a number of things. One is, the most interesting, I think, is double collaboration that people who had been working for the Soviets were very keen to show the Germans that they would go along with the Germans. And here, Hitler's idea of Judeo-Bolshevism, that Jews are Bolsheviks and Bolsheviks are Jews, which starts out as this crazy planetary fantasy, all of a sudden has application in local politics in this zone of double state destruction. Because people who had been working for the Soviets can say, oh, yes, of course, it was the Jews. And this is very convenient for the vast majority of Soviet collaborators who are not Jewish. And local anti-Semites, locals who are working for the Germans, take advantage of this, and they actually tell people who they know collaborate with the Soviets, okay, if you kill one Jew, your slate is clean. So that strange form of local politics, which is only possible because of the double occupation, double collaboration only happens where there's double where there's double occupation. That strange form of local politics moves moves the Holocaust forward. And it's worth I, I spent a lot of time on this in the book because it's worth it's worth dwelling on. We tend to think that people kill for ideological motivations. But the brute fact of massive double collaboration makes us think again, because the same policeman who deported for the Soviets also murdered for the Germans. One has to ask, could those motivations in both cases have been ideological? Because they contradict. Yeah. So I wanted to go on here to talk about, you know, some particular cases of, of this going on and, you know, mainly who is doing the killing. And in, in the vast majority of cases, it's not Germans. That's the sort of key takeaway message. So let's look at, say, Latvia, for instance, and what went on in Latvia. So it's, I mean, we don't, no one's ever done a full count of the killers. It's probably about half and uh, half and half. But you're quite right that some of the really important killers in the East are not Germans at all. Um, the way the killing proceeds for the East is that the Einsatzgruppen start by killing Jewish men when they see that this is possible because locals collaborate, but also because German policemen and soldiers go along with this. They start killing entire communities. In order to do this, especially in order to kill women and children, they try to recruit locals. Their first idea is that we're going to instigate pogroms. We're going to take these barbarian Slavs or Balts, and we're going to tell them to rise up against their Jewish masters, and they'll just do it because they're subhumans. That happens in a lot of places, in several dozen places, but the Germans themselves see that it doesn't work nearly as well as they expect. So what happens to the pogroms is that instead of being a mechanism of a final solution, they become a kind of recruitment device. The Germans take the locals who are willing to participate in pogroms, and they ask them to lead various kinds of militias or so-called self-defense formations. And then those militias are trained up by the Einsatzgruppen. And as you say, especially in the case of Latvia, there's something there's something very special called the um, Arais Battalion, led by led by a Latvian, which actually carries out the bulk of the Holocaust inside Latvia. It's Latvians trained, of course, and trained by Germans, recruited by Germans, but Latvians who go around Latvia and round up the Jews from village to village and shoot them. Now we talked about the popular image, the modern image of of the Holocaust as this sort of mechanized bureaucratic system for killing. And of course, it does happen. So I want to get us on to that popular idea of the Holocaust. And let's talk about Auschwitz, which you talk about in the book. And we'll get on to what you call the Auschwitz paradox in a moment, because I want to talk about the different, you know, the treatment of people from existing states against the stateless people. But Auschwitz, it's, it's become a symbol of the whole idea of the Holocaust, hasn't it? When I started working on the Holocaust, when I was preparing myself to write Bloodlands, one of the major insights behind it and one of the things which 
continues to motivate me to write about these subjects is the, the realization that the Holocaust was in fact much worse than Auschwitz and that Auschwitz itself was in a way much worse than people think. Uh, the, the, the Holocaust doesn't start with gas. It doesn't start with camps. It starts with mass shooting. When the Germans move on to gas, it's not to make things more bureaucratic and humane. They use gas because they have gas coming out of the exhaust pipes of their trucks. And they put those, they, they pump the gas from those trucks back into the holds of the trucks. And they put Jews in the back of the trucks and they asphyxiate them there instead of shooting them because they have this idea that that's going to be easier for them, the Germans. And they do this especially to children, to Jewish children in the Soviet Union. There's nothing less personal or less horrible about that. Then they park these trucks. That's Helmno. Um, they park the trucks. Those are the first gas chambers, parked trucks. And then at Treblinka, Sobibor, Belzets, they take the engines out of the, out of the trucks or out of tanks and then they pipe the exhaust into sealed chambers, very primitive, primitive facilities. And in that way, they kill more than a million and a half Jews at those three facilities. Auschwitz is another, it's another step in the innovation. They, have, they take a camp which already exists, a facility that already exists as a concentration camp, and they find more or less by accident that um, an existing pesticide, hydrogen cyanide, under the trade name Cyclon B, that they can use this to kill human beings as well. But I would emphasize that in no step of the story does it become impersonal, um, not for the killers, although there are fewer of them, and certainly not for the people who are being killed. And so the, the image of a kind of distant, mechanized, bureaucratic murder, I think, exists for the comfort of us. I, I don't think it exists at all in, in the history of the event. I'm Olivia Lang, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I want to talk then about, as I said, what you term in the book, the Auschwitz paradox. And let's look at this through the sort of parallel stories of, say, what would happen to a Danish Jew compared to, say, an Estonian Jew and the journey that they took throughout the, you know, throughout the war. Right. So the one thing which is special about, about Auschwitz and which is rightly remembered as special about Auschwitz is that it was a site to which Jews were sent from all over Europe. So the killing fields where about half the Holocaust took place, those were in the occupied Soviet Union. The first gas chambers, Treblinka, Belzec, Sobibor, Helmno, um, Majdanek, they were in German-occupied Poland. Auschwitz was also in German-occupied Poland, but it was it was at the edge of it, and it was used as a place where Jews were sent from elsewhere, first from Slovakia and then from all over Europe. The striking thing, though, is what Auschwitz tells us about the politics precisely of the Holocaust. And when the Germans go east and destroy states, there they can wipe out almost all the Jews they encounter. It's something like 95%. But when they're trying to get other states, even if those are allies, even if those are conquered states, but if they're still sovereign, to send their Jews, then things become more complicated. And roughly speaking, it's about 50%. So if you're a Jew in a sovereign state, your chances of survival are more like 50-50. If there's no sovereign state, it's about 1 in 20. Estonia and, and Denmark. Estonia, is a, Estonia and Denmark are similar places. They're on the Baltic Sea. They don't have that many Jews. Anti-Semitism is not particularly resonant in either one, if anything, a little bit more present in Denmark. And Estonians actually take some Jews in the 30s. The Danes don't. But during the war, 99% of Danish Jews survive and 99% of Estonian Jews are killed. And I, I try to explain this contrast. And the, the short explanation is that Estonia is a country which is first destroyed by the Soviet Union and then, and then the Soviet authorities are destroyed by Germany. You have a classic example of this double state destruction with all of the political potential that that releases. Denmark is a conventional, old-fashioned occupation 
the king remains, the government remains, elections take place. And when the Germans decide to carry out the final solution, people come from the East who have seen what the East is like, and they look at this and they say, no, the conditions, Germans I mean, Nazis, policemen, they look at this and they say, no, in these conditions of a sovereign state, we cannot actually carry out such a thing. And so the solution that they actually come to is that they let the Danes push the Jews across a bit of the Baltic Sea into Sweden. And I emphasize let because this never could have happened if the Germans didn't want it to happen. And in this way, there are no Jews left in Denmark. Most of them survive and the Germans can then – Nazis can report back that, that the country is Judenfly, which they do. Oh, one more thing which is really important. When Danish – some Danish Jews are captured, several hundred, and those Jews are not killed. They're not killed because they're citizens of the Danish state. This is a really important thing about the Holocaust. If you need to – if you want to kill a Jew, the passport actually stops it. If you have a passport to a state that the Germans recognize and that state does not agree, the Germans will not kill Jews. This is something that we, we – I think we've fatally underestimated. We imagine – we think in German racial categories. So we imagine it's all about ethnicity. But in fact – the politics of states had a huge amount to do with it. If a, if a Jew had a passport of a state which the Germans recognized, the Germans could not kill that Jew unless that state allowed it, which is extraordinary and I think largely forgotten. And also, I mean, there was a, a few hundred Danish Jews that were transported to, to a camp and all survived. But the irony is, of course, that that meant that other people were killed to free up the space for them to, to be in. Exactly. They were sent to Theresienstadt or Terezin, and then they were used as a kind of as, – as a display for the Red Cross or when, when the Red Cross visited that camp to show how great things were in, in German concentration camps. But to make room for all of that, Jews precisely who did not have state protection, they were sent to Auschwitz and gassed. I want to talk about perhaps – you know, you've, you've set this scene of this vast – I mean unimaginably large area of statelessness where you know, millions and millions of murders are taking place – people did survive. What would it have been like to have been stuck in the middle of this, you know, stateless wilderness, but eventually survive? Mm -hmm. One of the things that I tried to do in the book is to make clear to the reader just how different this position of rescue or this position of survival would be from our daily life. I, when, when, when we imagine rescue, we imagine just doing the right thing which is frankly hard enough. Even in you know really luxurious conditions, it's hard to do the right thing. But we're talking about conditions where there was, there was no law, there was no state, where economic incentives were actually directed towards the murder of Jews in many ways, where if you tried to rescue Jews, your neighbors would very likely be against you for all kinds of reasons. Um, and we're, we're, so you were, if, you, if you were caught doing it, at least in Poland and the Soviet Union, in occupied Poland, the occupied Soviet Union, the penalty was death. So in this situation... The point I'm trying to make is not very many of us would have behaved very well. And the, the realistic story I try to tell in the book is how it's precisely when people could lean on institutions a little bit that they were able to help. So the, under, the underrated rescuers in the Holocaust are precisely diplomats. Basically, not all, but almost all of the major rescuers, the people who rescued more than 100 people, let's say, were diplomats for the very simple reason that diplomats can give state recognition when it's gone. A Swedish diplomat in Budapest in 1944 can, can recognize Jews as human beings. A Chinese diplomat in Austria in 1938 can do the same. A Japanese diplomat in Lithuania in 1940 can do the same. And thereby, they could save hundreds and hundreds of people. There were Portuguese and Spanish diplomats who did this. There was an American diplomat who did this. 
was. But the, the thing they had in common was their ability to dispense pieces of paper, which momentarily at least gave Jews some kind of recognition by the state. The people who were able to rescue without that kind of power were truly extraordinary, which is the point I try to convey at the end. I end the book by writing about the people I call the righteous few, the ones who rescued without that kind of support. And in a way, that's where the history has to end. Because when you get down to those kinds of individuals, you're reaching individuals who you can't really explain by reference to motivation, by reference to the outside world. They're doing things for reasons they regard as good. And that, of course, is something that we can't forget. But the other thing that we can't forget is just how few such people actually were. I want to ask you to tell us a a couple of examples of of those sorts of people. But before we do that, an example of... There was obviously a lot of grayer areas in terms of people saving people under much less sort of you know morally clear terms people might have survived because they were sexually attractive for instance or something like that but the one I particularly want to talk about is a German guy called Kurt Trimborn tell us who he was and what he did well, Kurt Trimborn looks very differently depending upon which side of the story you're looking at and which family's point of view you, you have. From the point of view of an American family, he, Kurt Trimborn was, was the person who saved them. In, uh, in Zweibrücken in 1938, in, in, in the time of Kristallnacht, there was a, a Jewish cantor, a man called Eliezer Bernstein, who uh, happened to be friends with a police captain. And they were friends because um, the Eliezer visited prison to visit Jewish inmates, and the police captain was a guard there, and they spent time playing chess together. When Kristallnacht came, when when rioters were destroying Jewish businesses and synagogues, when when Germans took everything that belonged to the Bernstein family, as this happened, oh, and when, when Mr. Bernstein was taken to prison, which was typical, when this happened, his wife went and found Trimborn and said, "Can you help us?" And he said, yes, I can, which was interesting because he was not only a police captain, he was a Nazi, he was a member of the SS. He said, yes, I can. He packed them up in a car and he drove them to the French border, which is not far away. Drove them to the French border, made sure they got out. And then after some more difficulties of a lesser nature, they made their way to America, children, grandchildren, and so on. A couple of years later, Trimborn, as a policeman, by then as a member of the German um, Sicherheitspolizei, security police, is trained for, recruited to an Einsatzgruppen an Einsatzgruppe, and is sent to the Soviet Union, to Soviet Ukraine um, in late 1941, then to Soviet Russia, where, uh, according to his trial in the 1970s, he takes part, he orders, and he takes part himself in mass shootings, as well as as well as well mass gassings. Now, the interesting thing about Trimborn, of course, is that it's the same man, right? This is the radical case. I'm not claiming this is typical, that there were lots and lots of people who did this, but it shows how the same human being at two moments not very far apart from each other in time, only about three years, can behave very, very differently in different sets of circumstances. In one set of circumstances, he's still in Germany. Um, Germany is Nazi, but it's not yet at war. He's dealing with Jews who he knows personally, people he knows personally, I guess is the point. In another circumstance, Poland has been destroyed. The Soviet Union has been destroyed. The European order has been destroyed. He's far from home. He's far from people he knows, far from the rules he's familiar with. And he's asked to do things he hasn't, been done, hasn't done before. And he does them. And he confesses to doing them. So that's a story which, although admittedly extreme, should give us a certain amount of pause when if all we want to remember from the Holocaust is the lesson that we should rescue. Because Trimborn did rescue. But the fact that he rescued was not enough, right? It was not enough even for him, if you see what I mean. It still meant that he could be a killer in other circumstances. Let's um, perhaps talk about some more everyday acts of heroism then. How was it How was it even possible that anybody living in, again, the middle of that you know, vast tract of land where years and years of killing was going on around them could help anyone? 
Well, it, it, it's worth stressing that it was possible and that in most cases, the greatest danger people faced was not direct German power, but their neighbors. Um, that you know, German power and doing away with the state, doing away with convictions, taking advantage of local institutions was able to change entirely daily practice very quickly so that peasants who were used to denouncing each other for one thing now denounced each other for hiding Jews. The main thing people had to fear was other people, their neighbors. That was the main thing they had to fear in these conditions, which is, and I'm not saying that to say that East Europeans or Slavs are, you know, people who denounce each other. I'm saying that, that this is how people actually behave when there's not conventional political authority, when the law in the normal sense is gone. It was possible, though. It could be done, but you had to, you had to set your face against an indefinite period of the risk of the death of your family as well as yourself. And you had to behave a certain way all of the time. You couldn't really make mistakes. You couldn't be seen in this, you couldn't be seen buying things, for example, that were more than your family needed. You could never forget things like that. If you went to the local grocer and you bought extra stuff, he could report you and then you could be dead. Um, you could lose everything or you could even be dead and the Jew would certainly be killed. So you had to then learn to go to two grocers or whatever it might be. In the countryside, people, it was perhaps a little bit easier because visibility was less. But it was still extremely, it's always extremely difficult to keep people for a very long period of time. And the stories of success are almost always dramatic in some sense, of digging shelters, of supplying food, of taking away feces and urine, all these things which had to be done on a daily basis. You know, we, we can imagine there's a nice story and it's in its, in its it's, of course, a beautiful story when it actually works, but it involved all of these daily difficulties and, and daily risks. And some people did these kinds of things because, as you suggested earlier, they saw some version of the future with the Jew in it, whether this was someone that they saw as a lover or as a spouse, or in many cases, childless couples saw a Jewish orphan as their child, as someone who would fit into their future, inherit their property, continue their farm. There was that version. But then, of course, there was also a version of people who literally had no stake in this, no institutional stake, no personal stake, but who rescued anyway. There were people who rescued simply out of a notion that this is what one ought to do. And those are the most remarkable people, and those are the records that, of course, I was happiest to have found, and they're the ones that are most interesting and, uh, and, and the most emulable, I hope. But they're also terribly, terribly few. Just to finish off then, so this book, Black Earth, is subtitled The Holocaust as History and Warning. And you believe perhaps that we're, you know, we're not taking the lessons that we should from it. So I want to talk about the resonances now for the sort of modern world. And when we first started this interview and we started looking at Hitler's worldview, you raised a couple of ideas that seem very, very modern. So let's talk about what lessons you think we can learn. Uh, we also started by talking about the difference between memory and history. And one of the things which concerns me about memory is that we tend to remember things in ways that make them not only understandable to ourselves, but in a way in a way that makes them less harmful or less dangerous, less attractive. The, the, I'm not, it's not so much that we've not remembered the Holocaust. Of course we have. It's not so much that we haven't tried to understand it. It's rather that if I'm right, and, and of course in many ways I hope I'm not right, but if I'm, if I'm right about the causes of the Holocaust, we've got it backwards. We've completely forgotten the ecological aspect of Hitler's thinking. That's gone completely by the wayside. We don't remember that Hitler opposed scientific solutions in order deliberately to push the Germans out into racial competition. We've completely forgotten the political side. Or again, in my view, we've gotten backwards. We focused on the big state, the strong state, the centralized state, the bureaucratic state. Whereas in fact, what 
what Hitler was, was a racial thinker who used racial institutions to destroy other states, to destroy zones where something like a Holocaust was in fact possible. Now, if that analysis is right, it means that we way underplayed our own potential to fall into ecological panic. And we've we've misunderstood the, the, the very, it's a very conservative argument, I know, but we've misunderstood the potential of state institutions, even imperfect ones, to protect the lives and the lives of, of minorities. So my concern at the end of the day is that if this, the, we, we all take for granted, or many of us do anyway, this is that this is a central or the central event of the 20th century. If we've got it backwards, if we've misunderstood it almost 180 degrees, then we're not making things like this less likely. We will tend to make them more likely. I've been talking to Timothy Snyder. We've been talking about his book, Black Earth, The Holocaust as History and Warning, which is out now from Bodley Head. So, Tim, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you for the conversation. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.